These, these two young women, Whitney Sirak and Laura Van Ryn, while they were in college, they were involved in a very serious uh, vehicle accident in which several people, both in their large vehicle and in another one, um, died during this accident. Whitney Sirak's parents got the heartbreaking news that their daughter was, was one of the people who had not survived. Laura Van Ryn's parents rushed to the hospital where back in those pre-COVID days, they were allowed to stand vigil beside the bedside while uh, their extremely damaged physically and comatose daughter struggled as as weeks turned into months, the Van Ryans kept vigil. And during the same time period, the, the Siraks gathered with their church and their family to celebrate Whitney's life at her funeral. As the weeks drug on, the Van Ryans noticed Laura began to wake up more, began to seem more aware uh, they knew things would never completely be the same for her. Uh, physically, they could tell that, uh, but they were just so happy that there was some improvement. She started to want to sort of speak, and, and one of the first things that she said was false parents, which seemed a little weird. A few days later, Laura's mom asked her if she knew her name, and she nodded her head and very clearly said, Whitney. And to everyone's shock and confusion and horror, they began to realize at the scene of the accident, the bodies of these two blonde young women were misidentified. Whitney had survived the accident. The Van Rynes had been standing by her for weeks and weeks. Meanwhile, the Cirax had had Whitney's funeral with the Van Ryn, with Laura Van Rynes' body. Things are not always what they seem in this crazy world. In our study through the book of 2 Samuel, where we pick up, King David finds himself not king right now. King David finds himself on the run as his own son has executed a coup and an overthrow of his government. David is is running from his son, fleeing with some of his supporters as Absalom and his supporters flood joyously into Jerusalem behind David. But things are not always what they seem. This morning in 2 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to read four separate stories. We're just going to read them one at a time and talk about them. And in all four of these stories, we're going to be reminded that things are not always what they seem. 
Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 16. The first story is four verses long. Now, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a jug of wine. The king said to Ziba, why do you have these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will restore to the kingdom of my father to me, restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate, prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O my lord, the king. That first story, that's not what it seems, happens as David is on the retreat out of Jerusalem, and he runs into a man named Ziba. But the center of their conversation is a different man who's not there. His name is Mephibosheth. And here's a, a look at part of Mephibosheth's family tree. We've met him already in, in the book of 2 Samuel. Um, Mephibosheth's grandpa was the first king of Israel, King Saul, David's enemy. Mephibosheth's dad was Jonathan, David's best friend in the book of 1 Samuel. Mephibosheth, we also know from this book, um, when he was five years old, there was an accident and he's been crippled uh, ever since. Um, in chapter 9 of this book, David learned Mephibosheth had survived. David learned in chapter 9, my best friend Jonathan has a son. And so David made good on a promise that David had made to Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, and here was the promise. David promised, when I become king, like God promised I will, I'm going to be loyal to, to your household, to your family. To us, that kind of seems like no duh. Of course, you'd be nice to your friend's kids. But in the ancient world, when a different family took over control, generally what they did was round up all the members of the previous family and kill them because they're rivals. David didn't do that. He brought Mephibosheth into Jerusalem, gave him a seat at his table, made him a part of his inner circle. And then, and this is important for the story, David also made a royal decree. All of King Saul's former royal lands uh, now hereby belong to Mephibosheth. And other people, like this guy Ziba, had to farm it, take care of it but Mephibosheth was the owner. That's the background that we already know. And then this story reads like a betrayal of David by Mephibosheth. As David is fleeing, he runs into Ziba, a man David has known for a long time, since Saul was alive, probably. And he's maybe a little suspicious. He says, what are you doing out here with all this stuff? And Ziba says, oh, I just brought all this stuff for you, O oh, king. I just, you know, I just want to bless you with, with all this stuff. And David asks them, and it's confusing because of the way the old language worked. But what, what David asks Ziba is, where is Mephibosheth? 
And Ziba tells him, well, Mephibosheth is back in Jerusalem planning to make himself king. Mephibosheth is going to use the chaos to try to get the line of Saul reinstated as the royal family over Israel. And he's the surviving heir, so he's going to be king. And that hurt, David. After all I've done for Mephibosheth, and that's why David makes this judgment at the end, he says, Behold, everything I gave to Mephibosheth, which was all of Saul's royal land, I hereby take that away from him, and I give it to you. And Ziba bows and pays homage. That's the story. Now, there's only one problem with that story. The problem is things aren't always what they seem. Ziba's lying through his teeth. It's going to take us like five weeks to figure that out in the story. But Mephibosheth, this crippled man who can't, like, who can barely get around, does not think he can lead like a side revolution during Absalom, David's son's revolution, and get himself made king. That's not at all what is happening. Ziba has sensed an opportunity. He's looked around and thought, hey, with everything that's going on, I can play both sides of this rebellion. Absalom, the guy who's currently in Jerusalem as king, David's rebellious son, I'm sure Ziba thinks, well, Absalom will certainly get rid of Mephibosheth because everyone knows Mephibosheth is loyal to David. So I'll be okay with Absalom. Now let me go take some gifts out to David and kind of suck up to David and throw, throw Mephibosheth under the bus. And then if David wins, I will profit. If Absalom wins, I will profit. And David makes a snap judgment that he never should have made. That's the first story. Let's read the second one. It starts in verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man, pardon me, came back from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were at David's right hand and his left. Thus Shammai said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over there now and cut off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. 
So David and his men went on the way, and Shammai went along on the hillside, parallel with him, and as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at David. The king and all of his people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. In this story, that's not what it seems. David is still on his retreat. So David's retreating from his own rebellious, treasonous son. He thinks one of his good friends, Mephibosheth, has betrayed him also. And is as if his day couldn't get any worse, this clown Shammai shows up and starts pelting them with rocks and dirt clods and uttering curses at them as they go. The, uh, everything Shammai does here, by the way, is symbolic as much as literal. Don't think of Shammai as the lone protester throwing bricks and Mazel Tov cocktails at the police here. He's, this is symbolic. What he's doing, the stones represent the kind of death Shammai believes David deserves. Death by stoning. The dust he throws is a sign of mourning and shame. So he's doing something physically that matches the curses that he shouts. And his curses aren't just bad words. They're like negative predictions, evil proclamations. He's throwing rocks and dust saying, this is what you deserve, you, you, you bloodthirsty cretin, you son of a motherless goat. For any of you who are familiar with that, some of you will get that joke. God is taking away the kingdom and giving it to Absalom, and this is what you deserve. While we're here, this is a side lesson, but be careful of either being the guy or listening to the guy who looks at what's going on in the world and claims to know what God is up to, because things are not always what they seem. This guy claims to know, oh, I see what's happening here. God is taking the kingdom away from you and giving it to Absalom. That guy needs to hang on for a chapter and a half. Now, the part that's not what it seems like maybe it is, is David's response to this. First, his his nephew Abishai, who's also the, the third in charge of David's forces, military forces, comes to David, verse 9, and says, Hey, Uncle David King, why don't you let me go over there and cut this guy's head off? I think he will utter fewer curses if his head is no longer attached to his neck. And David's response is puzzling to us. David was not, uh, he was no stranger to bloodshed, for sure. David's very wise here, though. First, David tells these guys, all of his men, we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. David says right here, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. Who cares about this Benjamite, this shirt-tailed relative of King Saul? He's not our problem. David says, we are not going to let a sideshow distract us from our main problem. Absalom and that rebellion is our main problem. We cannot go chasing side problems. 
Then David, though, says a couple of times, the Lord has told this guy to throw rocks at us and curse us. And he says, maybe the Lord will bless us because of it. Does, does David really think that God has told Shammai to say these things and do these things to David? The answer to that is no. This is the part that's not what it seems. Here's what David is saying. First, again, he tells him, remember our main problem, and we're not going to get sidetracked by side problems. Then David says, if this guy that's not our main problem, if the Lord has put him up to this, who am I to shut him up? And if the Lord hasn't put him up to this, guess who he's going to have to answer to for what he's doing someday? It's not my job to find every evil and stamp it out. We're going to focus. We're going to stay in our lane, focus on our main problem, and we're going to let God deal with that guy as we continue on our way. And then David seems to, he seems to understand that maybe the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. He seems to understand if we let him do something wrong to us and do it correctly, God will make that worth our while someday. Is that, is that a biblical sentiment? It is. It is. He's kind of hinting at what Peter would write about a thousand years later when Peter wrote this. Peter said, but in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed or you will be blessed. So do not be terrified of the person who is evil toward you. Don't be shaken in your resolve, in your, in your faith, in continuing to do the right thing. Verse 15, instead, set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. When evil people do evil things and it hurts you, Peter says, keep the main thing the main thing. And when you don't respond like the rest of the world responds, be ready when someone says, why aren't you as angry as everyone else? And do it, verse 16 says, with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ might be put to shame when they accuse, when they accuse you. We'll come back to that a little bit in the end. That's story number two. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get sidetracked by side problems. And if, if that person's wrong, God will deal with them later. And if we suffer for doing what is right, God will bless us in the end. For, the, for stories three and four, the scene changes. We're not on David's retreat anymore. We're back inside the capital where Absalom and his supporters uh, are are victorious. Verse 15. Then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Now it came about when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, 
came to Absalom that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go out of the city with your friend, David? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Besides, who should I serve? Whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son, as I have served in your father David's presence? So I will be in your presence. Okay. This third story that is not what it seems reads like another betrayal of David by another very close friend. We met Hushai the Archite in chapter 14. This is a guy that I said last week is the answer to David's prayers. Last week, during the chaos of the retreat, David learned that a guy named Ahithophel had betrayed him and was planning the coup with David's son Absalom. When David learned that Ahithophel was, had been planning this with Absalom, David was really worried because Ahithophel was a very talented political advisor. He's the guy whose advice was never wrong. And when David learned Ahithophel is on Absalom's side, he's like, I'm in real trouble. And he offers this prayer up to God. God, please thwart the plans and the advice of Ahithophel. And David takes a few more steps up the hill and runs smack dab into Hushai the Archite. And that's one of the guys that David sends back into Jerusalem as a plant, a spy, a mole, an intelligence asset. And he remains loyal to David the whole time. We'll see that. He's going to be the answer to David's prayer next week or the week after. What we read here today is not betrayal. What we read in this story is what Hebrew scholar Robert Bergen calls one of the most successful acts of spycraft in Israelite history. And if you know anything about Israelite history, that is a mouthful because the Jews have been great spies for a long time. Now knowing that he is loyal to David the whole time, let's read what he says again. And you'll discover Hushai is saying things that he knows Absalom will hear one way, but he means completely differently. Check this out. It's pretty cool. As soon as Hushai, who's a double agent and trying to make himself seem loyal to Absalom, as soon as he sees Absalom, he says, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom assumes he's talking about me. Who's he talking about? David. Next, Absalom may be suspicious, but I think just smug and full of pride. He says, Absalom says, is this how you show loyalty to your friend David by betraying him? You know, like I have. Right? Welcome to the party. Welcome to the club. Why didn't you go out with your friend? Look how Hushai responds. Hushai says, no, 
for whom the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and his I will remain. Again, Absalom thinks he's hearing a loath of loyalty, a, a, an oath of loyalty, or a loath of loyalty, whatever. <laughs> but Absalom says, he's been asked, is this how you show loyalty to your friend? Why didn't you go out with David? And he says, no, I haven't betrayed my friend. For the guy the Lord and all the people of Israel chose, that's who I'm going to stick with. What he means is, I'm not going to be on the side of a guy who took the throne through a craftily staged coup and intrigue. I'm still on the side of the guy that God made king and all of the people of Israel crowned a long time ago. And then my favorite part in verse 19, he continues, besides, whom should I serve? What's the answer to that question? David. And should I not serve in the presence of his son, Absalom? Yes, I should. I should serve David in the presence of his son, Absalom. And as I have served in your father's presence, that's how I'm going to serve in your presence. How did he serve in David's presence? With loyalty to David. And I'll be bringing the same loyalty to David while I serve you, you filthy rat. I love this paragraph. It's more important for the next passage than it is teaching us lessons here, except Absalom's pride won't let him understand that things aren't always what they seem. Our last story is another one from this book that needs a, an adult content sticker on it. Starts in verse 20. Let's finish the chapter. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your advice. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof of the palace. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And yes, that means exactly what you think it means. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. I'll start at the end here. It's not just me guessing that Ahithophel was really good as a political advisor. Verse 23 says, everyone knew, like every, all the advice this guy gave was perfect, always. It was like God gave you the advice. It was always right. So why is this advice right? This is not Ahithophel, uh, by the way, Ahithophel was the grandpa of Bathsheba. We could go elsewhere to show you. That's probably why he hates David so bad. But this advice, and he hates David. We'll see next week. He wants him dead. This advice is going to help, he thinks, him get Absalom in firm control of power and get rid of David. Here's how. In those days... A king's, what we would call a king's harem, 
passed to his successor as um, like property. It's not right. It's not good. It's just it's the way it was. And so what Ahithophel says, Ahithophel's advice is not, let's just do something mean or, you know, sow your royal oats, so to speak. This is a political statement. It's very public. They do this publicly because this is Absalom in as clear of way as he could saying, I'm the king now and I'll prove it. It's also like burning the bridges with his father. This is Absalom saying, there is no going back after this. There will be no negotiations. The relationship between me and my father are over. This is going to be tough to patch up, right? And Ahithophel says, that way all your, soul, all your supporters know all your chips are in the middle of the table so that they know they can be all in because they know you are. And keep this, file this away for a few weeks like after Christmas. There's no going back. There's no relationship between David and Absalom. There's no room for that anymore. Everyone knows this except for David. File that away for later. But again, so that's what's happening. And everyone knows that's what he's saying. But still, things are not always what they seem. There's something else going on here that these two guys don't know. When David fell into sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, and he hid that sin, and God confronted David's sin, and God outlined for David some consequences that David was going to have to face because of his sin. Do you remember that story? Let me remind you, let me show you one promise God made to David that would be a direct consequence of David's sin. It was in chapter 12, it reads this way. God said, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from inside your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to this person close to you, the evil that I'll raise up from your household. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did your sin secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Isn't that what just happened? So here's, here's why I say this is, things aren't always what they seem. In this story, Ahithophel and Absalom think they're in control. They think, Absalom says, hey, give me some advice. What should we do? I've got the perfect idea. Boy, this is really going to help. And he comes up with this plan. And they're, they're doing this of their own free will. They can make the worst, most despicable, terrible, evil plans. But it turns out, all they can do is exactly what God predicted would happen ahead of time. And that is still the way it is today. Men can scheme. Men can plan. Men can do evil, awful, horrible things. But the world had not spun out of control then. It will not spin out of God's control now. 
nor will it ever. It's, you know, even the stuff the devil himself does, it's been said that the devil is a devil, but he's God's devil. So that's our four stories where things aren't, aren't always what they seem. It's time to discuss what we should learn from this chapter and from those four stories. I think every, we can learn something from each individual story, and I'll give you one thing from at least three of them. But they all fit sort of under this heading. Life is so complicated. Life is so complex. Life is so confusing. The only thing we can do that really makes any sense and has any wisdom is to focus on obeying and glorifying the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. Things aren't always what they seem. We cannot play our cards just right. We cannot look at what's going on and think, oh man, if this happens, but I better do that. And oh man, if I can't let that happen. And we, we're just so not in control of what's happening. And we can't predict it. So the only thing we can do is cling to the one who is in control. That's the only, actually, that's the only thing that makes any logical sense. Things are not what they seem. I can't tell what's coming. I can't do a good job of controlling and, and, and changing and preventing. The only thing I can do that makes any sense is cling to the one who is in control and obey him and glorify him no matter what comes. Now let's take that back into the story and see what we learn from each of these stories. First, the Zeba story. Zeba is the guy that came out and said that your friend Mephibosheth David has betrayed you and he's trying to be king, that guy. Zeba is a good look at someone who is opportunistic. Okay? And I, somebody has a, has a bad opportunity right now. Things are... <laughs> There are dangers in being opportunistic. Here's what I mean by being opportunistic. Zeba is a guy who looked around at what was going on and think, hey, there's an opportunity here. If I play this guy against that guy and I tell this guy this thing and that king that thing, no matter who wins, I'm going to profit in the end. And you know what? Maybe I have to throw Mephibosheth under the bus. But at the end of this, I don't think anybody's ever going to know I did that. Won't that be worth it in the end if I can pull this off? The answer to that is no. No. Everything that seems like a great opportunity isn't a great opportunity if what I have to do to get there takes me outside of obedience to God. It's not an opportunity. It's a temptation. And if David's life has taught us anything, it's that we cannot control the consequences of our sin. We can't control the consequences years from now our sin might have. It doesn't make any sense to try to seize craftily planned opportunities if those make me walk outside of what God would say is best. It will not be worth it. And then we learn something from David in that story too. Why do you think David was so gullible in that story? David hears a guy, he seems kind of suspicious anyway. The guy says, hey, your friend Mephibosheth has betrayed you. And David believes it instantly. Why does David believe Mephibosheth has betrayed him? 
You know why? Because it feels like everyone else is. My son Absalom is. My friend Ahithophel is. It just makes perfect sense that this guy will too. And David makes a hasty judgment. He makes a mistake that he never would have made if he wasn't walking around with this pain of betrayal in his heart already. Here's what we learn from that. Anytime we are, when we get hurt, when we get betrayed, when we get rejected, when we get whatever, it makes us self-protective. And if we don't deal with the, with, in a healthy way, with ways we've been hurt in our past, we will make mistakes we wouldn't otherwise make. We will wreck relationships we shouldn't wreck. We will miss opportunities the Lord has put in front of us because our past pain is what's in control of our decision-making. And, and listen, just, just real talk, me and just you for right now. I don't know who, who here this morning this is ringing a bell with. It says, you know what? Maybe my past pain is affecting my, my decision-making right now, and maybe that won't be good. Maybe this is me. Listen, I don't have time to walk through, and I don't ha- have the ability to walk through personally what you need now, but I would love to. If you don't deal in a healthy way with the way you've been hurt and betrayed in your past, it is affecting the way you make decisions now. And it's not good. And I would love to either be the one to walk through that with you or to get used to someone who can. Because you can have back the heart the Lord wants you to have. It does not have to be controlled by your past hurts and what other people have done to you. They don't deserve to have control over your heart. And we can learn that from David. And by the way, if you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, I can handle this. Are you a better person than David? Because he couldn't. Are you better at this than than Pastor Matt? Because I couldn't. I don't know, maybe you are. Maybe you're far superior to the rest of us. But I doubt it. From Shammai. Shammai, the Shammai story, that's the guy that that threw the rocks and the dirt clods and, and all that stuff. Here's what we learn from him. From David's wisdom there, it is what we need to do to to make sure we are focused on the main thing and not being sidetracked by a million other things that can make us angry, but can get us off track of where the Lord has put us, where we can be effective. David was so wise here. Guys, our problem is with Absalom, not the house of Saul. That's going to be a sideshow. Is he wrong? Yeah, I think he is, but God will take care of that. In our lives, how easy is it to let things that should not be our main thing sidetrack us from what should be our main thing? If you make the list, what are the most important things in your life? Make the list. Then ask yourself, how much time am I devoting to these things that I say are my main things?
The Lord has placed us where we are so that we can be effective obeying him for his glory. And we can be bombarded with a billion other things that can take so much of our energy and attention. You know, there may very well be a school district someplace that has a cat box because a kid identifies as a cat. That might be a true story, though I've heard it about 10 different school districts. I have a feeling it's kind of an urban legend. I don't know. Here's what I do know. It ain't my fight. If that is true, it's wrong. I don't like it. Whoever the decision makers are there, God will deal with them. That is not my fight. My lane is here. And where I can be effective, I need to keep that for Christ. I need to keep that the main thing. Isn't it possible that our enemy allows us to be bombarded with all of these stories of evil that he knows are evil because it distracts us from where we can be effective and helps us focus all of our attention where we have no ability to be effective. I mean, I know you have changed the minds of so many people in those Facebook arguments you've been in. Focus on the main thing. And when, when we suffer, if people are throwing rocks at us and suffer for doing what is right, we have an opportunity to be blessed and be rewarded by handling that well. It's actually our best opportunity to shine the light of Christ. If we do it, what did Peter say? With courtesy and respect. Being ready to give an account for, for the hope that I do have. And then finally, from Ahithophel and Absalom, which is reminded, none of the evil in our world can operate outside of what God allows. That's, that's a hard one to swallow at times, but it is very true. It is very true. So I don't know what you come in here with and which of that you needed to hear. But why don't you pick something? Why don't you... Why don't you pick something that needs to be my main thing from today? Is it the pain you're walking around in in your heart that you need to do something with this? Is it opportunities you have tried to start to chase that are going to take you outside of what God says is best? Is it focus on the main thing? Is it, is it fear and anxiety over the state of things and I just need to whisper to my soul this is not spun outside of God's control and it all fits under this life is way too complicated and complex to predict to even understand the best we can do is cling to the one who has always been in control and who has made us effective to serve him where we are let's pray our Father, I am so grateful for these old and really confusing texts. Uh, it's been so enjoyable to me personally to, to dive in and figure out what these things actually even say. But then God, as we discover that, to see how you are crying out to us 
from stories we didn't even know what they meant. And so God, for my church family here and, and guests and visitors and anyone, whatever they were struck with as their main thing that you spoke through your servant and your word to them this morning, that I pray you would give them the courage to take action on what they felt you said to them today as their main thing. And I pray you'd glorify yourself through us and change us into the likeness of your son that we might avoid the mistakes of those who come before and, and glorify you better than we have. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand up and we'll finish our time this morning.